Skull Rock Podcast is brought to you by the generosity of the following companies. Sure, sound extraordinary. To podcasters, recording musicians, and streamers who are looking for studio quality audio at home or on the road, the Sure MV7 Podcast Kit is a premium all-in-one solution inspired by the legendary Shure SM7B and is designed to address the versatility required by modern creators. For more on the Shure MV7 Podcast Kit, visit Shure.com, S-H-U-R-E.com, or click the link in our show notes. Shure, sound extraordinary. And by The Old Mill Press, publishing beautifully crafted books that illuminate our world. To learn more, visit TheOldMillPress.com. And by listeners like you. This is Eddie Sato, former Imagineer and voice of Walt Disney's Magic Kingdom. Last call for the Skull Rock Podcast. Skull Rock Podcast, talking all things Disney. With your hosts, El John Go and Dave Bossert. Welcome in to another edition of Skull Rock Podcast, the show about all things Disney and pop culture. Every week, we take you behind the scenes of some of your favorite Disney films, theme park attractions, performances, books, music, as well as what's streaming, what's playing in theaters, and what's going on in the universe of entertainment. I'm Al John Go, musician and longtime Disney, Marvel, Star Wars, and pop culturist. Email me, Aljon, A-L-J-O-N, at SkullRockPodcast.com. And I'm Dave Bossard, artist, filmmaker, author, and traveling man, and welcome to the Skull Rock Podcast. If you love Disney and pop culture, please subscribe to the show wherever you get your podcasts. You can also like and follow us on Facebook, X, which used to be Twitter, used to be. Instagram, and LinkedIn, and you can also email me at Dave at SkullRockPodcast.com. Al John, uh, we've got another great show this week. We've got Jim Capobianco, the director of The Inventor. Ooh. And you know how much I love The Inventor. Yeah, what a great little animated film. Cannot wait to delve into this. It absolutely is. It's out in theaters, and we've got the writer-director, Jim Capabianco, coming up. And, I mean, it's just, it's becoming a very busy fall, I have to tell you. Well, it is. I mean, not only do we have this movie, we have great interviews planned up until the holiday season for all of our listeners, but you've got two books coming out. I mean, you are just a man. You're so busy. Somebody called me a machine. You are. Uh, <laughs> I don't know if machine, I like that. Man. You know, maybe it's AI taking over. You oh, know? God, no. <laughs> Activate Skynet. Skynet. <laughs> I, it's a, all, all I could see is like, um, you know, I there was, a, did you catch this joke I posted on, on Facebook about, uh, about uh, Arnold Schwarzenegger and all the, these people uh, talking about, um, uh movies and films and stuff did you see that post no i didn't oh god so this is a dad joke so this is the first time on skull rock podcast so prepare yourself but um it's like stallone i make i'm making a movie about composers i'm playing beethoven van damme goes van damme i'll be mozart and schwarzenegger goes stop it guys i'm not saying it <laughs> now if you get it it's great but they you know of course they want him to say i'll be Bach." Right. So that's the dad joke of the week. It's horrible. Uh, womp, 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 womp. I know. Sad trombone sound effect. But anyway, <laughs> hey, uh, not only do we have Jim on the show, we have got a lot of great entertainment news. Uh, before we get into that, too, um, 
Dave, what what else is going on with you this week? Do you have any other uh, kind of feedback or anything that we have going on? Yeah, you know, something there's been just tremendous feedback about the Dave Spafford interviews. You know, we we had an unprecedented five weeks uh, of conversations with Dave Spafford, master animator, super talented guy. Uh, Last week, uh, part five dropped on on the show. And again, just a lot of buzz. I, I actually went and had lunch with Dave this past week. And, um, you know, we had a great lunch and caught up and he just told me his phone was blowing up uh, uh, because of these interviews and people he hadn't talked to in years were reaching out to him. And uh, and it's all good. Uh, you know, okay. I, I, I think it was really terrific. We're going to have Dave back on, I think, closer to the end of the year just to talk about all the animated films that are out that are in competition for the cool. Academy and all that. So cool. no, uh, no hate mail, no anything. Else. No. <laughs> <laughs> no, 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 no. We we didn't really get any. No, there hasn't been. You know, honestly, uh, all all of the emails we really and 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 comments on social media have all been positive. Okay. I mean, people people are really enjoying the show, and we love it. I mean, you know, we love hearing from our listeners because you know, if there's something you want us to talk about, if there's a topic we haven't covered that you're interested in, just let us know. Awesome. You know, we're we're here to serve our listening audience. Certainly. And we love it. Absolutely love it. So uh, once again, I encourage you guys and gals and anyone in between to just uh, s- send us those emails. We really appreciate it. Al John or Dave at SkullRockPodcast.com. And that said, we've got a bunch of stuff kind of to talk about. You know, in your busy, busy schedule, I know, and conventions too, I didn't even... I totally forgot to mention the fact that you went to do some conventions uh, over the weekend. Well, yeah, you know, I, I flew up to uh, San Jose to do the Bay Area Disney Anna Club. Awesome. Uh, and I, I, I talked about the Nightmare Before Christmas up there and signed a bunch of books, which really was kind of like a a, a precursor to the release of the book, yeah. uh, which is coming uh, tomorrow, Tuesday, uh, September 26th. That's awesome. I can't believe but- it's already time. I know it's crazy. Uh, and, and, and aside from that though, uh, I did have a chance to watch a few things this week, not as much go. as I, I would normally do. It's just becoming really busy, but I, I did rewatch the inventor, uh, okay, yep. because we have Jim Capobianco on today. Yes. Um, and this is a great movie. I can't stress this enough. I talked about it last weekend. It opened last weekend and I just want to let our listeners know, if you have a chance to see this movie, go see it on a big screen. Go to the local cinema. Uh, I think it was released in like almost 800 theaters. So it's not a super wide release, but it is still uh, the kind of movie you want to see on a big screen. So I hope people will go out and see The Inventor. Um, on the streaming side, uh, I continue to watch Murders in the Building. Um, which is season three, and it's absolutely fantastic. All the cameos, I mean, they're getting top-notch talent, and I don't want to, you know, spoil it for anybody, but you're going to be, like, I was shocked at some of the people that are popping in and out of these episodes. It's really fantastic. Cool. And, and, you know, aside from uh, uh, their cast, uh, you know, it's uh, Selena Gomez and uh, Martin Short and... uh, Steve Martin, Steve Martin. Yep. Um, you know, th- this uh, episode has uh, uh, Paul Rudd, 
uh, uh, you know, sort of uh, centers on on a character he plays in the first couple of episodes. Uh, and, and then you've got, um, I, I, I just, I'm not going to spoil it. I just think you have to, <laughs> I, I think you have to, uh, check it out. Cause it's really good. Right and on. then I've also, uh, kept up with Ahsoka yes. on Disney plus, yep. uh, really enjoying this, uh, this series. I think it's really well done. Um, you know, I, I, I have to say when I first, uh, watched the first two episodes and I said to you, yeah, I liked it, but I didn't like it as much as Andor or the Mandalorian. Well, you know what? It's, it's climbing the ladder for me, nice. you know, uh, because I think it's really good. And then I started watching, uh, what I think is just a limited series. Cause there's only one season. It's like eight episodes, uh, but it's called Loch Ness. Yeah. And, and it takes place on Loch Ness in Scotland. Yes. Uh, and it's a, uh, a you know, a, a, a thriller, uh, murder mystery. You know, there, there, there's a serial killer on the loose and uh, they're, they're trying to solve that. So it's, uh, it's very good. So that's all it. I've been watching this week though. Right on. Well, that's good. Uh, it was a light week for me as well. Just uh, kind of preparing for my 80s tribute, Dave, that I'm going to be playing in a couple of weeks here in Nashville. So we're going to do an 80s awesome. rock tribute. But, uh, uh, of course, catching up with Ahsoka. Great series. What else can I say? A lot of great Star Wars lore in there. Expanding the universe. Expanding the characters that you know and love. And just uh, really um, engaging stuff. And you don't have to be a lifelong fan like myself in order to enjoy the show. Um, I did see this, this popped up on streaming and I missed it the first time around. Uh, do you remember the film, uh, um, arrival Dave? Yes, I do. Okay. Yeah. So that popped up and, uh, I guess it popped up on Netflix or whatever. Um, but here we are arrival. This is a older film. It's from 20 older film, 2016. And it's, uh, got Amy Adams, uh, Jeremy Renner and Forrest Whitaker, and you see, since we were wa watching a lot of like Jeremy Renner stuff recently, kind of popped up, I guess. Um, but it's a uh, it's fun. I mean, it's like Independence Day without the violence, right? Okay. It's like Close Encounters of Their Kind. Remember this movie? Aliens land on Earth. There's twelve different pods, big old ships at land, and they are reaching out to humanity to find out what the deal is, and they're trying to communicate, and they communicate in such a unique in different way and they are here to, they are here to help humanity but of course it's unknown i mean the first thing everybody wants to do when they see the unknown is you have the fight or flight syndrome and some people just want to fight instead of like right. sitting down and and having conversations and trying to understand and get to a mutual place of of understanding and i i i shudder to think what would happen today if 12 different you know spacecraft landed on earth and decided they want to communicate with the different countries. How would we approach it? And uh, I'm I'm shocked, uh, you know, to just going back and thinking. I don't think we're ready for it. <laughs> Nothing well, I, will prepare I think they're us. preparing us for it, though. Yeah, slowly. I, I I think you know, with them, you know, uh, talking about UFOs at the Pentagon, setting up that office to investigate and release information on UFO. I think they're just preparing us all for the inevitable that yeah. there is 
much more intelligent life than there is here on planet earth out there in the universe somewhere. Yeah. Uh, we do have intelligent life here on earth. It's just few and far between. Unfortunately, <laughs> that's my feeling on it. Well, anyway, it's worth a, a rewatch if you, if you haven't seen it, but uh, definitely cool. And then another awesome. thing I did this week, and this is music related because we do talk about um, music sporadically on yeah. this program is the pilgrimage music and cultural festival. So this takes place in Franklin, Tennessee. It's just a, a uh, just a little bit of a drive for us. It's just right down the street. And this particular uh, festival is all about uh, music and a lot of Americana and alternative rock acts and things of that nature. And we're able to take the children on this, but it's awesome. a really cool, cool thing. It takes place on a 230 acre farm. Um, this is hosted and and presented by Kevin Griffin, who is the lead singer of Better Than Ezra. He's a local uh, songwriter, too. He's written songs for Howie Day and Taylor Swift, and he's just a really great guy and, and musician. So I love jamming with him and everything. So we all went there, and, you know, he celebrates music and different stuff, mostly Americana, but there's blues, rock, jazz, a little gospel in there. So it's just something for everybody on this farm. And then it's great for children as well. Yes, Dave. I was going to say, do they have multiple stages? So yes, like when one stages. stage finishes, when one band finishes on a stage, you can walk over to another stage and see another band while they're setting up the other, you know? Yeah, like yeah exactly. Sort of hopping there's, around so that there's always something playing. Oh, yeah. There's always something playing. And then there's a experience, a triangle music experience where um, different cultures and music are brought to life. Uh, children and youth can come and experience and kind of get this hands-on uh, making music and things. There is a, a fun farm there with little interactive stations and um, you know art, all kinds of arts and crafts. And then I was going to say, there's like a marketplace too. Yeah, there's a marketplace. There's like a farm. Wow. To, I call it farm to turntable that has favorite food trucks, and picnic tables, great seating, and everything. So it's just really well thought out. Uh, I encourage anybody that's a big fan of music to check out the Pilgrimage Music and Cultural Festival. They've been doing it now for several years at the park at Harlansdale in Franklin, Tennessee. And it's unlike any other music festival you see out there. It's definitely very chill vibe. Uh, there is no uh, uh, Woodstock 1990 vibes or whatever. There's no So bonfires. the Hells Angels aren't, aren't no, handling security. No, <laughs> no Hells Angels. No one's getting crushed. Everyone's chillax and having a great time on the and the. Uh, Harlandsdale Park and um, we had a great time and we were able to see uh, we left a little bit um, uh, while the Black Crows were performing but uh, just to give people an idea of the type of music Dave and I think you'd really um, you'd really dig it I is, love the Black Crows oh yeah so look at look at the lineup here uh, the Lumineers were playing mm. better than Ezra of course um, the Head and Heart the Black Crows, the Lumineers, I mentioned that already, uh, the Watson Twins, and then, you know, that is on um, different stages, too. I mean, you can check out, there's four different stages of people performing, and that's just Saturday, and, uh, and that was this past Saturday, and this past Sunday, um, they've got, oh, shoot, where is the uh, the lineup? But anyway. So th so this is like a whole weekend festival. It's a, it's does it a start on weekend. Friday? Yeah, uh, Saturday and Saturday. It starts on Saturday. Saturday and Sunday. Yep. So two-day festival. That's it, awesome. Yeah, Zach Bryan's performing, Charlie Warsham, Nathaniel Rateliff, and the Night Sweats, Margot Price, Ashley McBride. I mean, it, it just spans the, the whole gambit of alternative rock, Americana, 
a little country, a little soul. Um, so it's just really, really great. So I encourage everybody to check this out. It's just a great time and a lot of places around uh, downtown Franklin for people to stay and enjoy. And while you're there, check me out at the Gibson Garage when you're <laughs> when you're hanging out over there. Oh, so so the Gibson Garage has uh, got a, a presence at the festival. Oh, we do. Uh, we have oh, we have awesome. a we have an Infinity Guitar Tunnel. We have a merch booth there, so people can get all kinds of stuff, experience some guitars, and talk to some. Uh, great, uh, great salespeople there that uh, love interacting with it. But there's all kinds of interactive, uh, interactive vendors and stuff. We uh, went over there and check out uh, Tractor Supply Company and uh, got some seeds for the kids to plant stuff. And they were able to kind of chill out and have paletas and just have a good time. So anyway. <laughs> awesome yeah. uh, that sounds like a, so much fun and it just sounds like like I, I i take it the weather is it starting to turn to fall for you guys absolutely it's a beautiful fall weather it's be- absolutely beautiful and the pictures that i posted of us just in the farm field and the just all the grass and everything it was just picturesque you couldn't ask for a better weekend of music and fun and the weather being so cooperative and the vibe being so chill and so just um, harmonious. I mean, I hate to sound very hippy-dippy about that, but it was just really great. It was a kid's first concert. I'll never forget it, and uh, I hope they never forget it either. We'll, we captured a lot of moments there. It was fun. Wow, man, that sounds so cool. <laughs> uh, you know it, baby. Chill. Real chill, baby. Skull Rock Podcast. Ripped from the headlines. It's Skull Rock Podcast headline news. Dave, Dateline. Los Angeles, California. The WGA are set to meet again Sunday. After four consecutive days of negotiations. Dave, are we at the precipice, the end? Well, listen, I hope hope that they they settle at least the writer's strike as, as soon as they can. Uh, you know, the fact that they're meeting uh, on Sunday or they met on Sunday and the fact that they're, uh, you know, it's the fourth day in a row, it means they're making progress. So let's hope that they get to a place where um, they can settle that. And then uh, the studio chiefs can move on to settling the SAG after a strike yeah. uh, and people can get back to work because th- these strikes are really starting to hurt the people behind the camera. Yep. I mean, the whole industry is completely um, crumbling and the support systems and everybody in place. The town has become a ghost town. I mean, it's just, yeah, you know, let, I, no, it really, it really is hurting. And, and it's and it's all what they refer to as the below the line people. Yes. You know, uh, the those are the ones that uh, are, are getting nailed on this because some of those people were living paycheck to paycheck. Yep. You know, and uh, and everything's kind of shutting down with the exception of a few indie things that uh, they've, uh, you know, gotten um, uh, permission to do uh, from from the unions. So um, let's hope that it settles. There you go. Well, speaking of actors, let's go into the box office. Uh, Expendables Four scrapes up the franchise low three point two million dollar opening day. Uh, you know, I was joking about Sylvester Stallone earlier in the in the uh, in the show, but audiences just don't seem to attend the latest Expendables in the fourth entry of the franchise opening day. Uh, over thirty five hundred theaters with three point two million, a figure that um, is a pretty pretty meager, uh, if you will, in terms of the performance in previous films. Uh, then you've got. Uh, I mean, that's some serious, uh, serious that's casting a, they have here. Yeah. It, you know, something, the reviews for this movie are awful. 
Yeah. Awful. And by the way, still Sylvester Stallone is apparently just in it briefly. It's really a vehicle for Jason Stratham. Oh, say, oh, Jason Statham. Oh, excuse me, Jason Statham. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, You know, it's really a vehicle for him. Uh, He's the star of it. Uh, But as one review put it, he needs to seriously look at the movies he's picking because, you know, Meg 2 and this one, uh, they're just, uh, uh, you know, again, uh, there's nothing in it that I really want to see. And on top of that, they didn't really do much in the way of advertising leading into the opening weekend. I didn't really see much. No. You know, it's it's sad because I think the fun part about the Expendables franchise is seeing all the 80s action stars come together. All of them had a chance to shine. I haven't seen this, but I am intrigued by it because of the cast. But if Sylvester Stallone is literally a blip on the radar, I don't even want to see it. I don't even yeah, want to no, see it. Listen, I, I agree with you. You know, um, I, just, I, I just think it's, uh, you know, I, I, you know, I think it was a good concept to do one movie, but to do four, you, you're just kind of beating a dead horse. Well, if they made it good, then, you know, great. Yeah. you know, I mean, yeah, look but, at, they, look but at, they haven't been, <laughs> you know, I, like I was saying, you know, I mean, all they have to do is make great movies and people will come out and see them. Uh, it's it's just what needs to happen. If you just make some, if you just make some bottom of the barrel, you know, scum, and just put someone's name on it, it doesn't mean that people are going to go out and see it. I mean, all the box office, all the movie uh, production, all the movie uh, people put these these things out, thinking that the star power alone will bring people to the theater. That's not the case. You know, you make great event style movies of these tentpole franchises like Mission Impossible or, you know, um, whatever else is out there, Guardians of the Galaxy or whatever. You put it out and it's got to be well written. It's got to be, you know, well done. You know, you just can't put a a, a film with Chris Pratt or, or whomever and, and expect it to do well unless it's good. Yeah. You know? Yeah. No, listen. I, I I agree with you. Um, you know, look, uh, people are going to talk with their wallets and they're going to go to movies that they think that uh, they're spending their dollars uh, well on. Well, speaking of spending dollars, how about $60 billion? Disney's going to be opening their wallets, according to The Hollywood Reporter, to invest in its theme parks. Dave, uh, this is kind of the uh, the talk, we you know, Disney fans and park fans have been talking about for a while uh, we thought maybe all those plans of the Disney parks expansions were going to be put on indefinite hold, or they're going to be kind of slow walking it, but uh, they def- definitely oh, no. are doubling down Not at all. I mean, with this announcement, I mean, you're talking about a $60 billion investment over the next decade. Yeah. Uh, and they've got a thousand acres of buildable property around the world. Yeah. Uh, and so they're going to do much needed expansion uh, at all the parks, I think. Uh, including Disneyland. They have a whole plan down at the Disneyland Resort. Uh, And uh, this is great, you know, because uh, parks and resorts is a huge part of the revenue to the Walt Disney Company. And people want experiences. And people want those experiences in safe and clean environments. Yes. I love it. Yes, and that's do. and that's what Di- that's what Disney Parks and Resorts delivers. Yes. You know? and, and and I hope that they can hold back on raising prices for a while. 
I know there's been a lot of blowback from fans on, uh, you know, the aggressive price increases at the parks. I hope they can may- maybe maintain those prices for a while before they increase them again. Mm-hmm. It's part of their three-part plan. You know, they want to deliver more of what you say, those great experiences, uh, they definitely want to expand into new markets, especially with Disney Cruise Line. They're opening up some Asian and Australian, New Zealand markets and doubling the capacity, not only the cruise line, but also uh, bringing more people in. And I hope they do. I hope they just pause yeah. the, that, that stuff. And- As part of this announcement, they're going to be adding two new cruise ships in 2025 and another cruise ship in 2026 that's exciting uh and they're expanding the home port in singapore for for the asian market and um you know there there's so much more that they're going to be doing and and they they were talking about tapping into the fan base where people have an affinity to Disney, but haven't visited a Disney park yet. And they estimate that to be a 700 million uh, uh, audience. Yes. 700 million people audience worldwide. And so, you know, I think it's great. I think they, they should be tapping into those people who haven't come to a Disney park or resort. And, And frankly, you know, look, the people that have annual pass holders, you know, uh, the, the people that go to the park every single day to walk around, you know, that's not helping the company. Right. You know, they want, they want new people that have never been to the parks to come and, uh, and, you know, wine and dine and buy merch and all of that and have the full experience, you know? Yeah. They, they want not only the horizontal growth, but the vertical growth, Dave. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, you gotta have it. You gotta, you have, gotta it. have it. There you go. Oh man. Yeah. Anyway, oh, so. I, I sound so corporate there. Hey, uh, but, but it's very good. I but, mean, but uh, it's what it that's is. exactly it. That's what it is. You know, and in doing so, expanding the base, they want to do very little to alienate the base, according to uh, Reuters. Disney CEO says the company will quiet the noise in culture wars, and uh, Don Chemelsky, uh made this article up, and basically, I think. This goes back to what we've been saying all along. Shut up and entertain us. Yeah. You know, Al John, this is the whole thing. When we go to the parks, when we go to Disney parks and resorts, when we go to a Disney movie or any movie for that matter, we want to be entertained. We want to escape the day to day of our lives. Right. Yeah. When you walk into Disneyland or the Magic Kingdom or any of the parks around the world, you want to step back in time. You want to feel you're in in a different environment, in a safe environment. And you you want that fantasy experience. Mm -hmm. Uh, And you don't want people shoving messaging down your throat and stuffing stuff in front of your face that you're not interested in. You're hearing about all that stuff day in and day out in the news. You, you want to go into the park and not hear that noise. Yes. You, you want to be entertained and have a wonderful experience. Yes. And that's really what the company should refocus on. Yeah. Yeah. I think. So and, that, and by the way, doing so you're not alienating anybody. Right. Right. Put out good products. And yeah. you know, don't take sides. Just uh, just entertain people. Get back to That's the core. Just get back to the. Yeah. You know what happens? The further and further people get away from the core business or what what brought you to the dance, 
the least uh the the more they get they lose contact with their fan base it's just you know it erodes yeah. a fan base anyway um they 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 should they should have a chief fan officer <laughs> they should Come you know, on, Mickey, hire somebody, somebody who, yeah, they really should, you know, somebody who's actually in touch on the ground who can just feed, you know, Intel up the food chain. I mean, honestly, it, it, it's just, you know, to me, it's beyond me how they can do. And, and look, the fact that Iger has said they want to quiet the noise means that they're getting hit in the bottom line. Yes. They're getting hit with people not opening their wallets to go to the movies to see or to to see films like Lightyear or Strange World or even you know Little Mermaid you know the Little Mermaid live action you know it made 570 million dollars worldwide but in reality it should have made a billion yep you know and you know there's reasons why they they made decisions that aren't resonating with the audiences so they need to take a pause look at that and, and get back to the core basics of entertaining people and delivering the great experiences that the Walt Disney Company can only do. Yeah. And you know what? It's not even political. It's just not good. It's just <laughs> not know? good business. It's just not good. You know? it's just not so, good. Like, I mean, yeah. you know, anyway. Um, get back to it, Disney. You know we have. You know that you have it in you, and you have a wealth of people that are able to bring and deliver those uh, experiences to the people. And, and you know something, I was so happy to hear Iger say this because you know what he he's putting out fires all over the place, and he's yeah. he's he's got a tough go of it right now. He really does. But you know what, he's going to get through it. I have total confidence. He's going to do. He's going to turn the ship, and things are going to be great again. And people are going to be happy. You know, the fans are going to be happy. And that's what he needs to focus on. You know, I I, I just love it when people say uh, Star Wars was good and then Disney Star Wars is bad. And I'm going, what are you talking about? You remember when George Lucas had Star Wars and you were railing him because of the prequel trilogy? I said, look, guys, it, it, it's you can't have it both ways. <laughs> you right. know, there is great Disney Star Wars. There is great Disney. There's also bad Disney. So just make it good. That's all we ask. Listen, I, I'm going to say this, Al John, and I've said it a number of times. OK, uh, I, I'm not a hardcore Star Wars fan, but I will tell you under Disney Mandalorian, Andor, Ahsoka. These are great shows. Yeah, they're great shows. I'm loving them. And you know what? Nancy's not at all a Star Wars fan, and she's been enjoying these shows. Yeah. Yeah, I, I do, too. Like, I do, too. So uh, I tell you what, I'm holding your book, and I don't know why, but I, I just love holding your book. Sorry. About that. <laughs> I was like, I, I'm going to talk about House of the Future, but I'm not. Um, I no, want, no, we'll talk about it later. We'll talk okay? about it later. <laughs> Let's talk about um, Studio Ghibli is such a great, um, you know, distributed by Disney because uh, – uh, Miyazaki films are just really great animated films. And it looks like the studio by Hayago, Hay, Hayao Miyazaki. Gosh, I am so bad at saying that name. That's all right. Uh, sell stake to Nippon TV. Uh, there you go, Dave. Um, it looks like. Well, this, got- this is really about a succession plan for the studio because, you know, uh, Miyazaki's son uh, is a director or an animator uh, at uh, uh, Studio Ghibli. Yeah. And, uh, he, you know, look, 
this is about, you know, Miyazaki senior is 82 years old. And this is about uh, taking care of the studio and his partner is 75. So by having Nippon TV take a stake in it, it assures that the company is going to continue and have a good steward, uh, somebody uh, in the wheelhouse um, that knows business that will allow the artist to continue to make uh, great films. And, um, you know, I think uh, I think this is a great move. And Nippon TV has been a partner with Miyazaki for many, many years. They've helped fund some of the films and, and all of that. And, you know, many of his films are, you know, blowout successes in Japan. Yeah, absolutely. I think a lot of you know? people remember uh, Ponyo. Um, I also remember Spirit Away that was also distributed by Disney here in the States. Yeah, and Porco thought, Rosso. Yep. And I, I thought yeah. for sure, I thought for sure Disney would have a stake in it at some point, but uh, you know, they went on their buying spree and they never ended up uh gobbling up yeah. Studio Ghibli. Uh, yeah. And by the way, if you're ever in Tokyo, you should absolutely go visit the Studio Ghibli Museum, yeah, which Nippon TV uh helped to get set up. It's an absolutely spectacular museum. Awesome. Uh, it's it's just beautiful. I love it. It's it's great stuff. Dave, one of your favorite shows, Dark Winds, uh, Snake Season 3 Renewal at AMC. This drama has earned widespread critical praise and solid viewership for the cable outlet and the streamer since uh, they've launched AMC+. Plus. Uh, Dave, this is great news. I mean, this is a, a very um, lauded series. Yeah, no, I, I love this series. It's got a great cast. I just finished watching season two. Um, you know, if you're interested, you you know, people can, you don't have to subscribe to AMC Plus to watch this. You can go to Amazon Prime and just pay, you know, to watch a whole season, uh, which may be a better way to do it. It, it. You know, I don't know. But from my standpoint, excellent series with an excellent cast. Uh, and I can't, I, I was thrilled when I, when I saw this headline that they uh, renewed for season three, AMC has got some great series y'all. So if you love great TV, riveting drama, AMC plus man, great service. Great. Stuff. Yeah. Uh, last but not least, you know, people turn their eyes to the super bowl. It's only a few months away, 2024, but, uh, the big game has now snagged its halftime performer. Usher, Usher, Usher. We'll be headlining uh, the 2024 Super Bowl halftime show. Apple Music, the NFL, Rock Nation have announced on Sunday, uh, the other day, the game takes place at the Allegiant Stadium in Las Vegas, Nevada, February 11th, 2024, airing only on CBS. Uh, Usher follows Rihanna, who performed at last year's halftime show while pregnant, by the way. And, of course, the big 2022 show, which uh, was a celebration of hip-hop with Dr. Dre, Kendrick Lamar, Mary J. Blige, Snoop Dogg, Eminem, and 50 Cent. And it says here, quote, It's an honor of a lifetime to finally check a Super Bowl performance off my bucket list. I can't wait to bring the world a show unlike anything else they've seen from me before, said Usher. Thank you to the fans and everyone who made this opportunity happen. I'll see you real soon. Of course, he is an icon in and of itself. Tons of platinum records, Usher uh, Dave, are you a big fan of the Super Bowl halftime? Yeah, show? you know something. I I, ha- I I will tell you that I'm not a big football fan, yeah. but I always watch the Super Bowl, and I watch the Super Bowl not really because of the football game, but because of the commercials. Yes, and the halftime show generally. Same. Yeah, you know, and and they they every every year the halftime show is 
you know, an even bigger spectacle than the year before. And, you know, I loved it when the Rolling Stones played the halftime show and, you know, the list goes on and on. They only get the top talent to do the, you know, uh, the, the halftime show. And as Usher said, like it's a bucket list thing for megastars. Oh yeah, for sure. I mean, you too, Prince, you know, all those Elton great John, Elton John. Right? Yeah. I mean, the list goes on and on, you know, um, yeah. just great performances. And um, I really enjoyed the hip hop show last year, but I always watch to see how many of my guitars make it on stage, Dave. <laughs> all right. Awesome. <laughs> just awesome. All right. Looking forward to the halftime show with Usher. Uh, anyway, let's see what you're, you're been buzzing about. Let us know uh, over email and we'll discuss it in a future episode of skull rock podcast. Now let's sit back and enjoy our big interview uh you know it you love it dave talks all about it what's going on with the film the inventor brand new in theaters now and let's talk to director jim capobianco right here on skull rock podcast let's do it skull rock podcast interview time well, Al John, we've got another fantastic guest this week on the Skull Rock podcast. Uh, we've got uh, the uh, director and screenwriter of The Inventor, which is mostly a stop motion adventure film about the life of Leonardo da Vinci as he tackles the meaning of life with the help of a French princess. Um, and with us today is Jim Capibianco. Uh, the Academy Award-nominated screenwriter of Ratatouille, and he's the director and writer of The Inventor. Welcome, Jim, to the Skull Rock Podcast. Uh, it's great to be here, Dave, especially we have a history together, which is really, uh, it's really Yeah, I, I know. It's kind of crazy. And I, I was so thrilled to see your name attached to this movie and uh, equally as thrilled to actually be able to see it before it hits the theaters but as I said to you prior to us starting to record this interview, I'm going to go to the theater to see it because right on. It's, it's a wonderful film. <laughs> I'm glad you're going to the theater because we could, we need your money for excellent, the excellent. Well, hey, listen, the the first question I would ask you, Jim, is how did this movie come about? This almost felt like a film that was somewhat under the radar. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean it. Yeah, I'm amazed it actually did come about. It's uh. Uh, you know, it's an independent animated feature film in made in the basically a U.S. independent animated feature film. We did make it through Europe and Ireland um, through their tax incentives and breaks and use those teams there. That's how that works. But I think it's a pretty rare thing to have a film, an independent animated feature anywhere. <laughs> I, I agree with you. I mean, I, I think that, it, it, you know, just making an independent film is tough mm-hmm. doing an independent animated film and doing it uh, pretty much worldwide uh, to some degree. I mean, you yeah. were in multiple countries in Europe. You mentioned Ireland, um, the United States. Um, you were really all over the map. Uh, how, how did how did this film actually get off the ground? So I had made a short film called The Inventor, uh, called Leonardo, sorry. Mm -hmm. And uh, it was done in drawn animation. And that took about 10 years to do. I kind of did it mostly on my own. And then from that research, I sort of thought, well, you know, Leonardo da Vinci is such an interesting character in and of himself that, but we always put him up on this big pedestals, this genius and like, you know, 
you know, this sort of like other worldly God or something like we do a lot of geniuses even today. So I was thinking, well, in my research, I, you know, you learn about him and how he procrastinated, how he needed a boss, you know, he needed somebody to pay him, you know, to work for them so he could live. Um, he had trouble with his apprentices. He wrote about that. He, he wrote grocery lists in his, uh, you know, his sketches. So you get a sense he was just a real person. And that's what I wanted to tell. I wanted to tell that aspect of him. You know, I think of him as like the smartest guy in the room, but also probably the loneliest guy because here he comes up with these flying machine ideas and, you know, this is the way the body works and all these things. And, and, you know, if he was telling anybody at this party, they would think he's all crazy, you know? <laughs> so you'd be a lunatic at that time. So to me, that's what I wanted to dive into with this story. So that's where the impetus of the story started. And then the real key to getting moving with the, the actual story of it was um, researching him and learning about the King's sister, Marguerite. And that little triangle really um, got everything going. But once I had the script, and we could talk about that more later. But yeah, I was I was just going to interject here for our listeners uh, to to understand that Leonardo da Vinci, although he's Italian and everybody uh, sort of uh, equates him to Italy, uh, mm -hmm. he actually left Italy and went to France and became a uh, uh, you know, uh, part of the French court. Is That's that right? correct? Yep. Yeah. Yeah. This is the last three years of his life. He leaves Italy. He's, you know, uh, in Rome at this time and he's having trouble with the Pope. His patron is the Pope's brother. And this is all the history and the brother dies and he has no patron anymore. And it just so happened the King had invaded Italy and um king of france a new king and then this peace was made and the and he meets the french king so he then gets an injury you know he then kind of gets like an invitation by the french king to move to the court and so he does it because he's got no place else to go and he leaves italy and he moves to france and this is the last three years of his life it takes him three months to get there he's 60 years old this isn't where there are trains or anything <laughs> goes over the Alps. You know, it's just, and he knows he'll never go home. So this is, uh, um, you know, an amazing story in and of itself. So, and, and this is how the Mona Lisa got to Paris. That's right. He carried the Mona Lisa as one of the paintings he brought with him. Yeah. And um, that's why it's there. So, so. Um, you know, it, it, it's a fascinating piece of history. And, and I have to tell you, I didn't realize that Leonardo da Vinci had left Rome for Paris until I watched your film, The Inventor. Mm -hmm. And afterwards, I actually went online and did a little research on it and read up on that. And I thought it was very fascinating. And now I'm going to wind up getting the the biography that's out on da Vinci as well, which Great. I'm sure you've already read. Yeah, I've read many. <laughs> um yeah, you know, and then the film itself, I mean, the actual mechanics of getting this film off the ground was, you know, I started just, you know, you have this idea, it's bugging you, you start writing it, you start working on it. And then uh, I ran into a young producer, his name's Robert Ripberger, and he's made like documentaries and, and um, now he's made some live action narrative films. He just recently did a horror film, <laughs> um, but uh, he 
he uh was this young go-getter when i first met him now this is like 12 years ago and he's like well i can find you money and i was like okay i don't know how to find money and so he started lurking around to get money for the movie to raise money to to make this and i continued to tinker away on the scripts and and developing it and then he would drag me down to la i'd meet these like big hollywood types and stuff and and you know the whole Hollywood LA scene and um, it, nobody was really understanding what we wanted to do, especially with Leonardo da Vinci. They'd be like, well, why would anybody want to see this movie? Is it educational? <laughs> um, well, is it- you know what though, in, in a sense, there is a little bit of a facet of that because you've based it on, on history. Mm-hmm. It is. No, it's so, true. So not, not that it's overtly uh, a history piece it's just that it's based on it's based on true events yeah it is it's you know and that's rare in animation too i don't i couldn't think of any actually when i was showing around the short film that's one of the reasons too i made this film i ran in this mom she had just seen this the short with her child and she said asked me you know are there other movies in animation that we really enjoyed your short it was fun entertaining but we also learned something from it are there other feature films, animated films that do this? And I couldn't think of any. And then I thought, well, I don't know, maybe I could do that. So that that might have been the real, like, you know, flame that lit the the fuse. Yeah. Um, so meeting Robert, then we pedaled around. He, we're going everywhere. Uh, he's going everywhere to find money, digging it up. And then, you know, and this took 10 years. <laughs> and, and so you were working at Pixar. I was, yeah. So this and do, was and doing this as a passion project on the side. Yeah, just wherever I could grab some time yeah. and here and there, and uh, you know, thinking, well, I don't know, one day, I don't, you know, even at Pixar, I was like, well, I don't know, you know, would they make it? I don't think so. You know, it was just like it, there was did, never an avenue for it. Did, did you try and pitch it? Uh, did you talk to Pete, Doctor, or anybody about it? Well, at this time, it would have been John or John. So. <laughs> OK, yeah. uh, but uh, you probably would I, have be- a better chance of uh, pitching it to the Pope. <laughs> <laughs> True. <laughs> so, no, it never felt like, it. you know, because I always felt the film was a stop, uh, like a 2D drawn animated film or a stop motion film. Yeah. Originally, I thought it should be drawn because the short was a drawn animated film. And, but at the time I started coming up with it, Disney was turning to CG. They had sold the desks there, you know, 2 ds going away and CG yeah, they basically was gave, they gave all the 2D people a boot. Yeah. Know, yeah. So all, yeah. All that's happening. So I was like, well, you know, which executive out there, people with money are going to back a 2D drawn animated film when a 2D seems like it's dying at least in the u.s so i'm like you know what one thing i did want the audience to understand is that even though this is mostly a stop motion film i think you use the 2d sequences very effectively in this film uh and and just so our listeners understand when when there's sort of a uh leonardo goes into a thought uh or is thinking of something you kind of go into this beautiful hand-drawn uh representation of that uh and then you come back to reality which is the stop motion 
That's right. That was the idea. That was the fabric of the film or the, the language we developed for the film or I developed for the film. Um, and so what I thought was if 2D is going away, then what if I made it in stop motion? Because at this point, as again, this was 12 years ago, Leica had just came around. You have Wes Anderson makes Fantastic Mr. Fox. You... Henry Selleck was developing um, this film at the Cinderbiter film, which never came about, but it was happening at the moment. Yeah. So there was a lot of stop motion happening. So I was like, well, maybe stop motion. And I always loved stop motion and, you know, watching the Rankin Bass Christmas specials. And I grew up with all that and just really had an affinity for it. And Jan Pinkova, who I developed Ratatouille with, uh, would talk about Jiri Trinka all the time and introduced me to Jiri Trinka, the famous Czech stop motion uh, director. Yeah, and I and, love Ray Harryhausen and yeah. all these things growing and, up. And, right. and those are those are the influences for many of the stop motion animators and and, and filmmakers out there today. It's true. Yeah. yeah. And I, you know, so I thought, why not stop motion? And then I was like, well, I have to put 2D in it, too, because <laughs> so, I love drawing animations. Why I went into this business. So, yeah, the idea of the fabric of making the stop motion, the reality, quote unquote, and the drawn animated, you know, drawn animation as his imagination and everything was the right, was the way to go because the drawn animation obviously leans towards his sketches. And it's what we know about Leonardo da Vinci and then uh, stop motion is just handcrafted. It's built, it's very da Vinci in some ways because you, you know, the armature is a skeleton. The it's made by hand. It's like metal work, you know, jeweled and, uh, you don't really buy that stuff off the shelf. Um, you know, the, the sets are architecturally drawn out and then built. And every aspect of it felt to me like different craft engineering parts of a Leonardo da Vinci mind. So those two forms coming together to me was like kind of a complete, uh, in, you know, da Vinci thing. I, what I, I thought was fascinating because you're talking about how the puppets are constructed. Um, I, I thought it was fascinating to look at these characters and their arms sometimes didn't really have an elbow uh, articulation necessarily. It was almost rubber hose in mm. a few spots. And the other aspect of, of the, of the character design was I, I did have a warm, feeling about Rankin and Bass because I yeah. grew up watching all of those Rankin and Bass holiday specials. And so there was, it's almost like you were paying an homage to Rankin and Bass a little bit in the, in your character designs. Yeah. You know, I guess it just, that's what I liked even before it, you know, the short film, the Leonardo da Vinci character is, drawn that way in a sense of like he's just got dot eyes he's got a m&m head he's got this cone body and two like stick legs with baguettes on them and i just love simple shape character design and so because i designed him that way in the short and basically i wanted to translate that into three dimensions uh because i always had like this uh, i have this little maquette here that we made for uh animators um and he, so I always saw him in 3D and I, so then all the other characters had to follow his model, right? They had to look like they fit in the same world. Hmm. And we actually had a big discussion when we first started the project with the animators and the, my co-director, Pierre-Luc Grandjean, was do we make 
you know, do we make the eyes with whites? Do we have pupils and, and, um, you know, and everything. And so we discussed it and then they were like, no, we think we could pull it up. Why not go with just dot eyes and let's just go for it. And I was like, okay. They thought we, you know, could we get the acting from it? It, it worked. It, it absolutely worked. And you were able to uh, get the expression out of the eyes. Uh, we had which, great animators. And, and by the way, I, I, I'm going to bring up Nightmare Before Christmas because sure. you look at Nightmare Before Christmas and Jack Skellington has no eyes. Yeah, you're right. You know, and and and, and Tim did that purposely. And the character has so much emotion in his face, even mm-hmm. without having you know, traditional eyes. That's true. So, and, and since I mentioned Nightmare Before Christmas, I'm going to do a shameless plug because uh, next a week from Friday, or I should say September 26th, my Nightmare Before Christmas visual companion book uh, publishes. And there's actually a whole chapter on puppet fabrication in there that talks about the armatures and all of that kind of stuff. So I'm oh. I, total shameless plug here, <laughs> no, but please. we're back to the inventor. Great. <laughs> Speaking um, of nightmare, here's a connection to nightmare on the inventor. So our line producer, Kat Alley ocean uh, at the time she was Kat Miller who worked on the inventor. She was the production manager or line producer on the inventor as well. And was a part of the team. On on nightmare on nightmare yeah, yeah. I'm sorry on nightmare as well yeah and she so. there's a picture of her uh in there's a a picture of the production uh team and she's in that um, yeah. and, and by the way Tim Hiddle uh mm-hmm. one of the animators uh also worked on nightmare that's right so Tim worked we made so during remember you had asked me about how we got this thing made so ha- after I left Pixar which was around twenty was twenty sixteen. Um, just when I got the job to work on Mary Poppins returns, I had already started in the motion to make a teaser because we, like I was mentioning, Robert and I were having a hard time selling the film because we'd go around the things we'd always get dinged on were, um, what's the look of it going to be? How do you combine 2d and stop motion and this cadaver cutting up? <laughs> like, what's that going to look like? It's going to be really gross or, you know, what it was that going to, everybody feared it. So I said, no, no, we're going to make a teaser and show what the film could look like. So I used my own money and I, we made a teaser. It's like a, just two minutes. And um, I wanted it to look exactly like we'd make the film as close as we could. We got a cinematographer, Peter Sorg, who worked on Frank and Weenie and, and prior to that, um, and worked on other stuff. He's really accomplished. He came over from Europe, stayed at Tim Hiddle's house. <laughs> in his uh, guest bedroom uh and he would just walk down in his slippers and work the set was in tip tim's garage um to do the teaser for the teaser yeah. yeah so tim animated that and that's where tim i always wanted tim to work on the feature but because the film was made in europe at one point we talked about having a separate unit in the u.s but it never became viable it never became like financially uh like that we could do it, you know, um, it's just the European system. It works by co-production and you need to employ the people in those countries. Yeah. So the film was mainly made in France. Um, so that's I'm getting where, ahead of myself that, a little bit, but, but, but that's where the bulk of the stop motion and 2d was done. That's right. All yeah. of it was done. Oh, there. okay. All, all <laughs> the, the actual animation was done in France, which France, uh, yeah. out, uh, in the Paris area. No, it's actually south. It's down near Lyon. It's in oh, a city okay. called Valence. 
Oh, mm-hmm. actually just outside in Sempere, it's right. They're like two yeah. sister cities. Um, and what's interesting about that, which is cool, is that Leonardo, when he came over the Alps, he went through Lyon and actually went, as he went over the Alps, he went to Annecy and then he crossed <laughs> into Lyon and Lyon is just 40 minutes or 30 minutes away from Valence where we made the film. So it's all connected. It's just beautiful yeah. the way it worked out. It's really and, neat. And it also sounds like it was a very international crew. It was. Which is always, I think, uh, really fun. Really fun, yeah. We had uh, uh, about 12 or so countries represented on the film. And yeah, and stop motion is very itinerant. So our animation team was about probably half French and then the rest, which we had about, we had always had about 10 10 or 12 animators going. I think it was 12. We had 12 animators going. I mean, a couple of them switched out during production, but um, they were always going. We had 12 stages and 12 animators. Yeah, it's, it's. Um, I think some people are surprised when they hear like Nightmare Before Christmas had, had a dozen animators mm-hmm. pretty much for the bulk of the film. You know, there was a few others that came and went that did, you know, some little pickup things or whatever. But the the bulk of the animation was done by 12 animators. And I think the, the craft, uh, the stop motion technique lends itself to having a smaller group. I agree. I learned a lot about stop motion on this. I, I, you know, I'm not a stop. I don't even claim to be even now a stop motion guy. Yeah. (laughs) Um, I I learned a ton about it. And the one thing I did learn was how on larger productions, a lot of the stop motion animators sit around because they're waiting for their sets to get ready for them to go and shoot. So they may sit around for days and I was like, Holy crap. You're, sp- but, you're just but, pouring all that money out. Yeah, but the thing I would point out, especially with the animators, is they, they may appear to be sitting around, but they're doing all the work in their head, in their yeah. mind's <laughs> eye. They are envisioning what they're going to be doing, because I know that from personal experience. You all know, right. you spend half a day thinking about or a day or two thinking about the scene and then you create it. Okay. <laughs> sure, Dave. <laughs> um, but was our, we could not do that. We were like, yeah, get them on the next stage as fast as you can. And we were rolling animators over. And you know what? They loved it. They loved not having to sit around. They were just yeah. like, so the, you know, the, going. The, the interesting thing when I, uh, after I watched the film, I, I watched the credits, the entire credits um and um you know aside from noting all the different countries that were doing tax credits and whatnot all the executive um, producers i was i was gonna (laughs) say i i noticed a few familiar names but i was like wow that's a lot of executive producers how did that come about was that because of the crowd with the kickstarter part of this well, yeah, you know, going back to the story that we're we're stringing along yeah, through this okay. whole podcast, you know, finding the money for this film. Was, I mean, we had a very small budget. The budget was around, you know, it's crazy. It's like eight hundred eight million dollars. Um, we, you know, Nightmare was more expensive. <laughs> well, you know something though. In context, I, I just want our listeners to understand, like an animated film. You know, an anime, a, a CG animated film can cost one hundred and fifty to two hundred million dollars. Mm-hmm. 
and so the fact that you could get a film done for such a small amount of money, even though it's a lot of money, it's still a small amount of money in the context of I'm making a movie. What, what these movies do cost at major studios. So, I mean, kudos to you for doing that because it's, it, it, the film doesn't look inexpensive. It's, it's beautifully created. It's beautifully crafted. It has a handmade feel to it, but you know, the, the um, stop motion animation is very fluid and, and and very dynamic. Yeah. You know, we really, uh, you know, as part of the thinking of how to make this film was how to make it in an economic way that you can hide it, you know, just being creative in the way the cameras were set up or the use of the shot set up. So, you know, the, the, the thinking in a way, looking back at Rankin and Bass and looking back at Jerry Trinka's work and uh, Carl Zaman and these old Czech animators and the way those were done. Um, even looking at UPA work, artwork, um, and what they would do to economize. And just because it was the way they, they had to do it. And you would see like Rankin and Bass, like their sets are so sparse and they like a Rudolph, right? The, everything's monochromatic in the background and the sets. It's all like gray, except for the puppets. They're, they pop out. They're these like colorful things. So I wanted to really make the sets sparser. I found a lot of stop motion today has a lot of busy stuff in the background. The characters even have a lot of things on them. And I really wanted to simplify all that. So it worked into the look of the film, but it also be, it was a little cheaper because you didn't have to make all that stuff right. that would go on in the background and, and light it and lighting that too. Right. So it, it all kind of had a, a snowballing effect and was really conscious, but also it wasn't like, we're going to just make it cheap. It was like, how do we make it in a way that we fit the budget? How, how do you make um, that a great, went through production how, too? Yeah. Like, how do you make a great film efficiently? Exactly. Exactly. You know, and there was a lot of efficiencies in it, in the fact that we had cat Alyosha, right? She, who I mentioned earlier, she was amazing because she was the only other American on the film production other than me in France. In France, yeah. Mm -hmm. So Kat moved over there for a year and a half. And she restructured the production in that she brought kind of the American idea of production management to the French, who I think are a little bit more like each department would sort of manage themselves and a little more joie de vivre about it. It just was like very loose. And she came in, she created this board called the big board, and it would have 10 weeks and we would see all the shots coming up. And it like amazed the French. They were like, what is this? And that planning and her organization working with my co-director, Pierre Luc. Now, Pierre Luc goes way back with stop motion. Like he, that's all he's done. And he's just made beautiful films. Actually, his film Four Seasons of Lyon, which is a series of four different little films about this little bear. It's in like the Middle Ages. He's adopted by a, a human family. Um, it's just really charming and stuff. And I loved it. I use it as a research, a reference for the film. I never thought I'd meet Pierre Luc. I never thought he'd be my co-director. Mm. And then when I met Ilanya Rose, who ran Folioscope, he goes, well, do you want to meet Pierre Luc? I said, yeah, sure. It'd be cool. He's like, do you want him to be your co-director? And I said, what the heck? <laughs> what are you talking about? And then we met and he was like, 
we're like long lost brothers. It mm. just, we fit so well, obviously because I loved his films. I had its sensibility spoke to me. So Pierre Luke, as I got to understand stop motion, well, what going back a little bit, Pierre Luke with cat was perfect because Pierre Luke, Pierre Luke knew how to assemble a stop motion film to go. Here's how we plan it. This set will be on that stage for X amount of days. It's like a live action film. Mm-hmm. You know, it's only going to be, there then we need to shoot all the shots on that that direction on that set and then we're going to rotate the set and we're going to shoot all the shots that way these puppets will only be available these days for that set because we had limited puppets we we had for leonardo i think we had eight leonardos right which is which is a low number very low yeah for for the main character that because the you know the the puppets get abused Mm -hmm. uh during the filming process the the creation of the animation those puppets get abused and i'm sure you probably had a puppet hospital we did yeah we had one person who kind of did the did did all the repairs yeah Mm -hmm. so yeah so he planned it and then so that team of cat and pierre luke and we shared an office when we were all in france together and myself we really were the hub of like how do we keep this thing running on budget and on time which we had to end on time because the film was bonded and if it went over budget or went past the deadline it would have been taken away so i always had that on the back of my yeah my back which which Um, is which is by the way what happened to richard williams exactly uh, and, and his um thief in the cobbler film that's right uh the the completion bond company came in and took the film away from him so you that know, it, story yeah. knowing that history was yeah. always like right beside me and i was like okay i am this film is going to end right on time and we're going to be on budget and we did we ended on time on budget now um, now I, I, the the film is opening the weekend of uh september 15th september 15th right uh mm-hmm. so by the time people hear this it's going to be out in the world okay the film will be but the 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 question i'd ask is who's distributing the film and how's the reception been so far well the reception has been really amazing it's been great i mean currently we're 100 percent on rotten tomatoes we're um wow that's been awesome. great reviews um from the press and and stuff uh it's been really a, a tremendous reaction we had a great reaction annecy it premiered at annecy at a world premiere oh, there. very and, nice um you know and it that was really satisfying because that's our tribe and and everybody responded really strongly you know they're also a very uh fickle group and you could actually have them respond and they're, the a, wrong they're way. a very picky group too yes, you know it's very, so. very picky. um <laughs> So I, uh, I, you know, it, it was actually, and then, you know, the, the history where Leonardo had actually gone through fantasy, I thought was just like, and I told the crowd that and I thought that was just so cool. You know, that must here have we brought are the house it. down, you know? Um, yeah. And it got a, you know, a huge round of applause at the end. People applauded pretty much through the credits. It was just, those were long credits. <laughs> yeah. So, 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 so who's, who's distributing the film in the U S and, uh, and other parts of the world. So in the U.S., we have a distributor. It's a small independent distributor called Blue Fox. Okay. And they're distributing it here. Um, and they've been really good partners. They've actually managed to get the film into 700 plus screens 
which is awesome. Which, which is, is really awesome. Cool. It's amazing. Yeah. I mean, especially today when, you know, it's like films aren't even opening on in theaters, right? They're going right to streaming and stuff. So and these are big films going right to streaming. So that we were given the opportunity to go to theatrical was great. And they've been really great for us. Um, and then internationally, it'll be universal international releases it internationally. Okay. Well, you know, look, the the one thing that I'm going to emphasize is to me, this is a true family film. Mm. You know, when I watched this, I just thought to myself, gosh, if my daughters were little kids again, you know, uh, I would take the whole family to the theater to see this film because it's a heartwarming story. It's a piece of history that is accessible and makes you want to learn more. Uh, and it, it's got a beautiful score to it. Mm. And, and it's just a visual delight. And there's no, there, there's nothing, there's no messaging being spoon fed to you. You know, there, there isn't anything uh, quote controversial uh, as there has been in recent years with so many movies. Um, this is truly a family film. Uh, thank you, Dave. Yeah, I think so, too. Um, you know, interesting, you bring up the score and how original it was. Don Hahn came by the sound uh, mix while I was in Dublin. So that's where and, we did and, all and, the posts. And by the way, he's an executive producer. That's right. Yeah. Don's so, been our little uh, like guardian angel godfather over the film. Actually, yeah, he's the one who came up with the inventor title. Oh, that's fantastic. Don's Don's a friend and a friend of the Skull Rock podcast. He's been on multiple times on our show, but I I was very thrilled to see his name uh, as executive producer on its own, because there is a there is a couple of cards where there must be like 50 other executive (laughs) producers. Hard to fit them all in. (laughs) (laughs) And 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 by the way, I I do want to mention the fact I saw Jerome Ramph's name. Yes, Uh, he did all your maquettes. Yeah, he did some. He did like the Zoroastro. He did a a sculpt of that. And um, he actually designed Zoro to look like Jerome. So he's uh, he's in the film. Um, So, uh, yeah, Don had come by in Dublin or sound mix and he saw the we played a bit of it and he saw the score or he heard the score and he was just like, man, this I have never heard an animated movie with a soundtrack like this. It is so unique. Yeah. And, uh, you know, beautiful. It's it it was beautiful to listen to my uh, composer, Alex Mandel, who I'd worked with on your friend, the rat. He was my composer on that. And then he just stuck with the project all this time, us working back and forth on the music and um, me coming out with crazy ideas and him trying to implement them. And uh, he even bought a lute, had a lute made that he would use. Um, yeah, it was a real, real pleasure to work with him. And he's a real, really a good, versatile musician. Like he can do any type of um, music and uh it was great and he didn't has a history of, of renaissance music like he studied it for a time so he was able to interpret it from renaissance music into a modern feeling because we felt actually this was don's note early on when we changed the title he said don't make the film dusty because <laughs> we were like don why are we having a hard time selling this and he's like and it used to be called leonardo and the king 
And he said, well, I don't know, maybe it's your title and the fact that it's, you know, it's Leonardo. It's like, not that it's Leonardo, but it's leaning too much on the parchment kind of thing. of Leonardo yeah. Da Vinci. Yeah. And he said, you don't want it to feel too dusty. Maybe boost that. And he thought, you know, what about some, a title like the inventor or something like that? And he just threw it out there. I don't know. He was like going, that's the title you should use. But Robert and I couldn't figure out another title after we had dinner right after that. And we're sitting across the table, the two of us and Robert and me. And I'm like, well, what title should we do? And we went, made a list, a bunch of things. I'm like, well, what about the inventor? And he was like, well, yeah, why not? You know, it's, it's simple and, and it conveys, uh, it conveys what you think it might be. Yeah. Right. So, um, what about, um, uh, the marketing of this movie? Uh, Is it getting marketing support from the distributor? Are they pushing it? Yeah, so they're doing a pretty good job with that. We we have um, actually through Don again. See, he's been just an angel over it. I was talking to him about PR because I think in the end, you know, we're like all our money went into the production and then, oh, yeah, wait, we got to sell this movie. Yeah, <laughs> we got to get it out there to people. Um, we were relying a little bit on the distributor to do all the PR. And I said to Don, oh, what would you think we should do here? And then he mentioned a group called 42 West in, um, who he had used on, um, um, finding, um, waking, sleeping, or waking, sleeping, waking, sleeping beauty. Yeah. 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 I got stuck on finding. Um, and he said, uh, you know, I use these guys were really good. So I suggested let's get 42 West. And then they had was great as they had worked with Blue Fox before. And so then Blue Fox was like, oh, we love these guys. So then they brought 42 West on and uh, they've been amazing to like get us out there and get us the press we needed and everything. So it's really snowballed since then. And it's been good. That's awesome. I think that's why we've been having a great word of mouth started and and definitely some good press happening and um, the premiere, which will be in the past when this podcast comes out. Yeah, when, when does it premiere? Is it? We are having an LA premiere on Thursday. Okay, Thursday. Week. Um, so the 14th. Okay. And then the film will release on the 15th. So we have an LA premiere and I just found out we'll have a bunch of press there that we were like, are we going to have any press? Because we, we've also suffered from the SAG strike. Sure. Um, where we can't use any of our actors to promote the film. Right. So... Uh, you know, I've been doing all the PR pretty much. And uh, then we didn't think we'd get press at the premiere because there's not going to be any actors. So, but now suddenly we have, uh, we're going to have a kind of a really good gang of press and stuff. And going to have a lot of the old Disney gang there um, uh, at the premiere too. So it'll be, uh, awesome. it'll be fun. Awesome. What do you, what do you think this movie is going to do for, you know, I I mean, as far as what do you want to see it do as far as running in the theater and then have longer legs uh, where it goes on to streaming and all of that kind of stuff? You know what I think is cool about this film or could be is because of the subject matter and um, of it, it has a life beyond what we usually think of movies because you could show this in museums. You could show it in schools. You could show it, um, you know, in programs that are talking about the Renaissance and different aspects of of these things. It'll have a a screening and maybe a permanent life at Clos Lucet, where Leonardo lived, which we depict in the movie in Amboise, France. 
Oh, that's um, awesome. And so I think beyond just streaming and everything, it, it could have even a bigger life than a lot of films do. Um, and my hope is that people will come back to it again and again as they grow up as well, because I feel children will come in it at a certain level and then as they get older and they won't understand everything. And then when they get older, they'll understand more of it and, and it'll kind of reveal itself more and more to, to the viewer, even adults. I think the more you watch it, the more you'll get from it. Well, listen, you know, all of us who uh, grew up on Rankin and Bass, how many times do we see that? How many times do I still watch the Charlie Brown Christmas every Me year, too. you know? So, you know, the, these are the kinds of films that will, will maybe start out slow, but, but have a long life to them because they just pick up steam and pick up fans. I mean, look at nightmare before Christmas yeah. and nightmare, you know, was an okay, you know, uh, premiere, you know, initial release. It wasn't anything to write home about. And, you know, certainly the studio didn't know how to really market it. They put it out under the touchstone, but you know, we're talking 30 years on and the film is as popular as ever and keeps expanding its fan base. It's you true. Know? Yeah. So um, I, I would just encourage all of our listeners to go out and see this film in a movie theater, because that's really where it deserves to be seen. Uh -huh. um, that said, after it's out of the theaters, do you know if it'll go on a streaming service? Has a streaming yeah. service picked it up yet? We don't have one yet, so we're not hoping, yet. You know, the six. Hopefully, the film will do well, and then, yeah, it'll lead us to the next phase of its life. Fantastic! Um, and so, what's yeah. and what's next for you? Are you going to do any uh, another film? Well, I hope so. That would be fun. Yeah. Uh, right now, it's all about getting this movie, get seats and uh, people in seats to go see this. But yeah, but you must have you must have an idea bouncing around. I uh, do. I have another script. It's not a Leonardo da Vinci script. Yeah, sure. But you <laughs> have another really another film idea. Yes, I do have another film idea, okay. different film. It's kind of like a, I call it sort of a well, this film I always call the mashup between Amadeus and um oh it, Amadeus and like Rankin and Bass stuff. So, okay. Um well, and Monty Python. So. <laughs> um, and then uh, the other film I'm developing or written and, and hope it would be made is like kind of Princess Bride meets uh, It Happened One Night. And, uh, you know, I don't know. And I wrote it a bit to be really cheap 2D animated. But uh, now that I've done stop motion, I could see it done in stop motion, too. Awesome. Yeah, I you know, look, I love stop motion. Uh, I also think stylistically it's a breath of fresh air out in the theaters because there's been so many CG movies that they're all starting to blend together. You know, they're 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 all looking, you know, uh, uh, CG uh, with the exception of maybe, you know, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, which I saw in the theaters. Uh, Spider-Verse. Yeah. And across the Spider-Verse, uh, both of them, uh, 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 Spider-Man. Uh, what's the first one? Spider-Man across the Spider-Verse. The second one was Spider-Man. 
in or into the Spider-Verse and then across the Spider-Verse. First one was into the Spider-Verse. Second one was across the Spider-Verse. You got there, Dave. <laughs> yeah, I got there eventually. My gosh. Um, uh, and we don't edit. So <laughs> uh, our listeners will enjoy that. Uh, but, be, you know, aside from those couple of, uh, you know, three or four films that have been out uh, where they really integrate, uh, you know, CG and hand-drawn techniques and come mm-hmm. up with a new look, mm-hmm. um the only other thing that's stylistically very different is when you see a new stop motion f- a film and those mm. are few and far between. Yeah. You know, you had Wendell and wild two years ago uh, from Henry. Uh, but I, you know, I can't think of, Pinocchio. you know, too many others, you know, and, but when they come out, they're gems, they're beautiful films that you want to go back and revisit, you know, like Coraline mm-hmm. or Nightmare or James and the Giant Peach or one of those films, you know, because it just has such a beautiful look to it. And and I have to say kudos to you for creating a film that has a very unique and beautiful look to it. Thank you. Yeah, I really uh, I'm proud of it. I think we did a great job. The team in France was amazing. Great animators. Uh, it was run by our directing animator, Kim Kukuleri. She is a animator who works with Wes Anderson all the time. She's okay. worked on all of Wes Anderson's films. And even while we were making the film, I don't know if people have seen the, his new asteroid city. There's a little stop motion moment in the film. And she was brought on by Wes to make that while she was making our film. Oh, really? So okay. on the weekends, she couldn't say no to him. She couldn't say no. So on the week, <laughs> they actually built at her house, a set for her. Like they built, like part of her house turned into a stage. They built the set and she animated on the weekends on this. I don't want to give it away if people haven't seen yeah, it. Yeah, but the, that, that's awesome. The animated bit. And and she's the, and so she's his go-to. So And then she's running the team, the animation. She's directing animator of, wow. of this group of 12 animators. Um, and she was amazing and beautiful. She brought great group of people together that I, my hats, I just, I'm indebted to her because the animation, even to this day, when I look at the animation, I am amazed at what the animators pulled out of these inanimate little puppets with dot eyes and simple, and a simple design. And you really believe that acting is just tremendous. And, um, and I told everybody, I said, you know, I think because they're simply designed and there's not a lot of, there's not much facial features. I mean, they had sticker mouths, sticker eyebrows, dot eyes. Um, that's it. That's what they had to work with. And then the body. And so I said, it's about the frame. It's just, it's about the way we frame it. We stage it, the lighting, and then the music. Don't forget what music over the voice acting. All these things are about the same thing as the performance of the, of the character. So don't think it's all on you, but they ended up bringing this like power to the, the characterization. And, um, you know, and as we went along the same, probably your, your experience with, with our history, with the films we've all worked on that as the animators get going, you realize, Oh, that animator is really good at that. This animator is really good at, you're casting you know, action. You're, you start to cast yeah, it. And casting. so that evolved during the production too. We realized, oh, this guy's really good with the humor. Um, and Boris this is his name, Boris Wolf. He was really, and he'd get really only wanted to do the comedic scenes. 
And then uh, he'd get really happy when he got like a king scene or, or the Nepvu and Il Bocador characters. Um, and then this uh, really wonderful animator, Hel uh, Hannah Wright, she, well, at first I was a little like, you know, we didn't know where to place her. She was seemed struggling a little bit. And then she started doing these really subtle, powerful acting moments. And that was like her thing. And I was like blown away by her acting. So it just like evolved during the production. So it was just beautiful. And, and the team I worked with was just all across the board, all the people. It was just it was a wonderful, wonderful group of people, wonderful, amazing artists, no now, egos. Now, now, none of those executive producers were getting in the way. I mean, there no. must have been 50 of them. They, did you ha keep, <laughs> no. them, keep them out of the facility? Yeah. So what I'm joking. <laughs> it was great in this. Well, the European system in France. Yeah. The director has a lot more power than the producers do. So it's that auteur. Yeah. Kind of sensibility. Sure. Sure. So and, and generally you had a smaller crew. We had a really small crew. Yeah. For for the, the bulk of the production. Yeah. For the entire production. <laughs> Did, did you do much in the way of green screen and, uh, you know, have to do compositing and things like that? Digital compositing? Yeah, yeah. there is definitely. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, you know, we definitely use the technology you can use today uh, right. in our way that we could. We had a very bad motion control camera. This is probably the cheapest one you could buy and it would fail us all the time. Actually, the last shot we shot in the film, which isn't the last shot of the film, but... Uh, it was this pullout from Leo when he's screaming up at the heavens and the pullout we needed to finish this day was the last day of shooting. The camera stopped in the middle and they couldn't get it to move. And, uh, and we needed to get this done. And like, uh, it took like two hours to like get the camera to start going again. Once they got it going again, it worked again. There's this little jitter in the move. So, but we lucked out in the sense that he's yelling up to the heavens. So you don't see it. You, you really, it's imperceptible because he's yelling and the whole thing has got this like scream to it. So this little camera jiggle seems like it was made to be. So it was a happy um, accident. A lot of happy accidents like that <laughs> in the film. Um, the other one I'd love that was really cool was, there's a moment when they're in a carriage and uh, there are five characters. There's the four girls, there's Marguerite and then Leonardo's in the center and he's like had it, you know, he's at the end of his rope and he's really exhausted and he, the animator it's and the carriage is moving. So you have all, you have what five, six characters and a carriage moving finished shot. They show me and the Leonardo's hats the wrong way. It's totally backwards. And, uh, and I was like, his, his hats on wrong. And they were like, <gasps> and I was like, Oh my gosh. And I was like, and I'm it really on this film. I think I threw sent back 12 shots. Right. The Hunter film because it's stop motion. Sure. We don't have the money. Yeah. Basically you had one take and yeah. it was really Ray Harry in style. I mean, this was like old school. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so I'm thinking, and they're all looking at me like, is he going to ask for this shot to be reshot? And then I just thought about it and I was like, and this was every time I went into the stage, I'd have to be prepared to like rethink something. And how do you, so I was like, okay, there were two more shots to happen after this. 
So I was like, and was going to get tighter and tighter on the characters. So I said, okay, what we're going to do is not go as tight as we did on the la- uh, for the last shot. We're not going to do that shot. We're going to combine that shot with the next shot. We're going to come in a little tighter and we'll just have one of the girls still in the frame. We'll have Leo and we'll have Marguerite. And then during the shot, have the girl turn the hat around. And so the animator I, I rem- did. I remembered, I remember that shot. And, and and it worked perfectly. It didn't look like there was anything other than it was planned. This is again, it was a happy accident and the animator executed it perfectly. Like the timing of when she put turned the hat and and the sincerity of that. And it just it just made the moment even better because you see this kindness the girl does and he's having a hard time and stuff. So there were a lot of moments like that. It was pretty special film. Well, it's uh, it really is a special film. It's a film that everybody should go out and see in the theaters, as I've said multiple times. <laughs> and uh, Jim, I want to thank you very much uh, for being on the Skull Rock podcast and talking about The Inventor, which is a beautifully handcrafted movie. Thank you, Dave. Thanks for having me. It's real fun. It's been nice to talk to you again. It was good talking to you. Become a supporter of Skull Rock Podcast with small monthly donations to help sustain future episodes for just 99 cents a month. You can do that just like Lindsay and Joshua. Thank you so much for your support of our show. Be sure to click our link to support the show at skullrockpodcast.com forward slash support. Your attention, please. Now loading on track number one for a trip around Walt Disney's Magic Kingdom. Skull Rock Podcast. All aboard. Your main street to the world of Disney. Oh, Dave, what great timing. I'm so glad you were able to sit down and talk to uh, and talk to him about this show, uh, this movie that is in theaters now, Jim Capobianco, director of The Inventor. Yeah, and, uh, you know, again, I, I can't say enough nice things about this movie because I just loved it so much. It's really a truly a family film. Uh, and uh, I just would encourage people, try and catch it in the theaters before it goes goes away. You know, it, it's a small movie, but it's so worth seeing in the theater. And you can take your kids, your grandkids, whatever, to see this film, uh, it, it's just, it, this This is the definition of a family movie. I love it. The Inventor. So people should go see it. I hope you enjoyed the, the conversation with Jim. That's awesome. So glad you're able to do that, Dave. Uh, once again, if you love Disney and pop culture, please subscribe to the show. If you just stumbled upon us, thank you so much. Especially you that made it to the end. Uh, you can subscribe to us on your favorite podcast platform. We're everywhere, y'all. We're everywhere. Uh, we're Spotify, Amazon, iHeartMusic, Apple, uh, Sorcerer Radio Network. Please, you know, just go out there, subscribe to the show, share it with your friends. Follow us on all social media, Facebook, X, LinkedIn, Instagram. We're there. Be sure to check out the archive of shows at SkullRockPodcast.com on Anchor and Spotify. And send us those emails because we love to hear from you. And uh, maybe your email will be read on the next Skull Rock Podcast or show idea, Dave or Al John at skullrockpodcast.com. And uh, just a quick plug for Dining at Disney Podcast with me and my wife, Kristen. Hopefully, you'll tune, in, tune into that as well. Dave, 
I always get hungry when I listen to Dining at Disney. Oh, I know. We're, we're, <laughs> we, need to, we need to have you back on the show to discuss your books again. <laughs> hey, uh, you know, I've got a bunch of things I just want to mention to our listeners. Um, I did a podcast called Conversations with Filmmakers with Vante or Vante McRae. Uh, conversations with filmmakers and I talk about my career and I talk about the Nightmare Before Christmas book uh, so you can catch that it's a brand new podcast so you may want to check it out she's terrific uh, very energetic uh, lady um, I also want to let everybody know the Nightmare Before Christmas visual companion my one of my latest books is releasing from Disney editions on Tuesday September 26th that's tomorrow for crying out loud. Wow. If you're listening to the show uh, when we drop it, uh, it's uh, Nightmare Before Christmas Visual Companion releases Tuesday, 926, September 26. Nice. And uh, I was honored to have an article in Dwell. Yeah. Now, some people may know Dwell Magazine. It's an architectural magazine. They also have a website, dwell.com. Uh, and I have an article, The Legacy of Disney's Monsanto House of the Future in Dwell. So you may want to check that out. I think Al John's going to put a link to it in the show notes. It's awesome. Great article. I just checked it out. Yeah. And speaking of House of the Future, my House of the Future book is number one on Amazon in architectural history. Ooh, yeah. And it. then finally, 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 <laughs> <laughs> The, the crowd goes wild. Finally, I want to let you all know that I am a guest DJ on Be Our Guest on Disney Hits on Sirius XM this week. And you can hear my show on Wednesday, Thursday, and Friday. And then I think they run it for like a month. But on Wednesday, uh, it's on uh, noon and 9 p.m. Eastern Time. Thursday, it's on at noon and 2 p.m. Eastern Time. And Friday, it's on at 9 a.m., 1 p.m., and 8 p.m. Eastern Time. Oh. So check that out <laughs> on Disney Hits. Yeah, I love it. We'll put links here in our show notes. I'm tracking down all that Boy, stuff. I, I, you know, that's, uh, that's a mouthful of stuff there. But um, I'm just thrilled with uh, the reception for both the uh, House of the Future and uh, the Nightmare Before Christmas Visual Companion, which is finally coming out after five years. Uh, I'm so thrilled about it. So with that, I will say to you all, go out and have a fantastic week. Be good to one another. And we will see you back here next week, right here on the Skull Rock Podcast. I'm Al John Go, co-host of the Disney List podcast as heard on Sorcerer Radio, as well as Skull Rock podcast here with my wife, Kristen. Hello. Hello. You are an earmarked agent who books Disney travel vacations for people all the time. Give our listeners a reason why they want to give you a call instead of just booking a trip by themselves. Well, I can do all of the legwork for them. I have expertise. I've been to the Disney parks well over a hundred times so they've got that knowledge at their hand as well as it saves them time and money where can people get in touch with you so that they can book their next disney cruise disney park trip adventures by disney they can contact me at theme parks and cruises at gmail.com